Thank you that as we come together to worship Christ, we've been reminded of through these great songs that you are the King sitting on the eternal throne to which all creation must bow. Father, as we come to your word, may we come with hearts that are bowed before you, lives that are willing to submit to whatever it is your word says. Father, help me to speak clearly and faithfully. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10, and please stand with me. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we will focus on verses 3 through 6 in our time. And as a reminder, this is God's authoritative, inspired, sufficient, infallible, inerrant word. And we submit to what he says. Let's read this together. 2 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walk according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God, And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it's the start of a new year, which is a time we often consider how life went last year and what it might look this next year, what it might look like. And as we analyze and ponder such things that we saw last year, such things we see now, we stop and notice a few things. We might see chaos and corruption which frustrates us. We see our society throwing every form of morality out the window, which discourages us. And then there's just the political stuff, which is a mess. And as you step back, looking at all this, you might wonder, as I have wondered, what in the world is going on? What is going on in this place? Well, I want to remind you this morning that the Bible gives the answer to that question. It answers that question. It tells us what's going on. It tells us that we live in a fallen, rebellious world, a world that hates God. But it's not just an uneventful fallen world. No, it's a fallen world that has a war going on, a war for the hearts and minds of everyone. And we call this spiritual war. And it's all around us. And the thing is, we didn't have to sign up for this war. We were actually born into it. But as we begin this year, let's refresh our thinking about how the Scripture calls us to navigate through this spiritual war. And 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6, really gives us help in this area. Now, you might remember 2 Corinthians, Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church, and after several letters he has written to them, some we don't have, one we, two we do, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He, he had visited them, he had taught them, we learn that he actually had, had planted the church, and yet, throughout all this, a, a group of rebellious false teachers had infiltrated the church. And Paul had confronted them, he had confronted the Corinthian church, and much of the church did repent, but there were still some issues with these false teachers. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians to defend his ministry to them. This 
the, the ministry itself in Corinth was being hindered by the attacks against Paul and his teaching. And so here in this letter, especially the last part of this letter from 10 on, he sets out to deal with it. And in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, we really get a true glimpse into the nature of Paul's ministry. What his ministry is really doing, what it's what is going on as he's engaging these false teachers. And by extension, really the nature of our life in ministry is seen in this way. That what Paul is saying he does, how he engages in ministry, really by extension is our life in ministry as we strive to live for Christ. And all of this teaches really the main idea that as servants of Christ, we must combat ungodly thinking with the truth. Right? As servants of Christ, we must combat ungodly thinking with the truth. And this combat against ungodly thinking is the spiritual war. It is the main fight. And so as we walk through these verses, Paul helpfully, to give that clear point, provides three tactics for us. Three tactics for this spiritual warfare that help us live for Christ in a hostile world. Three tactics. The first begins in verse 3, which is to wake up to the war. Wake up to the war. If you're taking notes uh, in the bulletin there, the blank underline is wake up. Wake up to the war. This is the first tactic given by Paul. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. So Paul here gives the reality of his ministry really the reality that every believer faces. There is a war going on. Now in verses 1 to 2, right before this, Paul is dealing with some accusations. Accusations had been made against him. People had said, especially the false teachers, said, Paul, he's so bold, he's so harsh when he's away from you, and he writes you these mean letters, but when he's present, he is really just a weak little man. So why would you listen to him? And Paul counters that accusation, that false accusation against him by really admitting admitting that he was meek. He's not weak, but he's meek and gentle with them as he desires to be. But his meekness when he was in person with them should not make them think, should not lead them to think that he's unwilling to confront if necessary for the sake of the church. Don't confuse his humility with his lack of conviction for the truth. So they accuse him of his character there, but even further accusing his character, they would say in verse 2, well, Paul walks according to the flesh. The word walking there in in the Bible often is used to give the picture of living. Paul lives according to the flesh. He does whatever pleases him. He's sinful, He pursues his selfish desires. He's really anti-God. And so this ministry he's with you, it's just to take you for granted, to gain something from you. And believe it or not, the Corinthians had, some of them had been wrongfully persuaded that Paul was engaging in ministry this way, that Paul was someone engaging in ministry as being self-centered, tyrannical, and only doing it for his own benefits. But Paul confronts that Here in verse 3. So while he'd been accused of walking according to the flesh, verse 3 begins, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Hey, what's the truth? He walks in the flesh. In the flesh, not according to the flesh. You see there, at the beginning of verse 3, there's a little word, for. Just a helpful little word when we study our Bible that is giving the, an explanation for something. It's an indicator that what Paul is going to say, he's going to explain something. He's going to explain what he's said previously. He's going to explain why these accusations of fleshliness, especially in ministry, why they're untrue, why they're not true. And he says, I don't walk according to the flesh, but I live in the flesh. Not according, but live. There's a, there's a major difference there. Major difference between according to the flesh, living in the flesh. In the flesh, here he refers to just his normal human existence. 
normal existence here on earth, that he had normal daily experiences of being hungry, exhausted, weak, going through difficulties and suffering, which you can read about many of those in 2 Corinthians 4 and 11. So Paul lived as a man, just as any of us. But he did not live according to the standards of the ungodly thinking about what reputation and influence looks like. He did not buy into this worldly mindset of what it takes to be heard, what it takes to be popular, what it takes to have authority. He says here, so walk, he does walk in the flesh, but he goes on, we do not war according to the flesh. We do not war. So in these verses, three through six, this is the main verb. What does that tell us? This is the main point. The main point is the, point is the idea of this war. So he moved. He shifted from a picture of walking to now a picture of warfare, really highlighting what his ministry, what his life is like. It's a war. But he's not engaging in this war according to fleshly, worldly desires, fleshly, worldly opinions. But he is waging war. In fact, it's not just he is waging war. Did you catch that? It says we. We do not wage war according to the flesh. So we are waging war. It's Paul and his companions. And by extension, it's every believer, everyone who strives to live faithfully for Christ. We wage a war. And it's ongoing. For all my lovers of grammar out there, it's in the present tense. It has an ongoing element to it. A, that ministry and the Christian life are, in some sense, a constant struggle of engaging to ensure that the gospel of Christ prevails and the church is built up. Both built up internally through discipleship, but then built by people coming to know Christ. It's a constant struggle. Now, let's expand and get a better understanding of what this war is. What is this spiritual war and its warfare? Well, it stretches all the way back to Genesis 3 in the garden where the serpent tempted Eve, where there was a questioning of God in his word, a questioning of the faithfulness of God's word, the authority of God's word. This spiritual war is a battle in which we fight against all that seeks to deny or distort the character of God, to deny or distort the word of God. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are opposed to God, God's word, and God's people. There is a clash. Now for the, the one who's not trusted in Christ, you belong to the army of darkness, the army of of the devil that wants to oppose God, that seeks to oppose God. But for, for you who have repented and trusted in Jesus, you have been transferred from the army of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the beloved Son. And we now fight for the king of the universe, Jesus Christ. By the way, Jesus Christ who already won the victory. Now, this, this war is not a physical fighting war. In Ephesians 6, Paul gives us a, uh, another uh, glimpse or understanding of what this warfare, this conflict is like, who it is against. And it's not against people. He says in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Against, not people. We're not actually punching and kicking people. Okay, it's a, it is really a war and engaging of the ideas, the beliefs, the worldviews, the ideologies that take people captive, that are demonically brought about. The schemes, the worldviews that are satanic, that want to oppose God, that people are 
captive to, we war against those things. We don't go around rebuking demons or speaking to the devil. He is way stronger than any of us. The Bible does not call us to do that. No, this spiritual war is the fight for the mind and the heart of every person. That's where it is fought. Now, as we think about, okay, that's, yeah, there's this war going on. Let's understand, really, the enemy that we face. The enemy we face. The ringleader being Satan himself, the devil. He likes to corrupt, and he twists everything. He twists everything away from how God made it. He blinds the minds of the lost so that they don't see the glory of Christ. He hates God. He hates God's people. He works tirelessly to create discontentment and grumbling, not only within us in our own lives, but within the church. He is about the business of distorting, distracting, and deceiving. Distorting, distracting, and deceiving. And he's good at it. For Paul would go on a chapter later here to say in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He disguises himself as looking good, holy, and righteous. He wants his lies to look more appealing to us than God's truth so that we would welcome his counterfeit, we would welcome his subtle arguments with open arms. Which is why, in some regards, a Christian bookstore is one of the most dangerous places if we're not careful. Because he sneaks error into there. The enemy wants, us to, wants to make us numb. Numb to the influences that come our way. And everything around us, everything in the culture, from entertainment to media to books to people to unbelievers, everything is firing ideas at us. Everything. So we must, we must practice discernment. Not just distinguishing between obvious right and wrong, but as one writer said, right and almost right. We must be alert to make sure that there are no ungodly ideas, no ungodly ideas that are leading us to act or think unbiblically. Well, does that mean that we should all go live in the mountains in a monastery? No. God never intended for that. What was God's intention? Go tell the nations about Christ. Go make disciples for Christ. Well, if we're going to make disciples for Christ, we need to be around people who don't know Christ. Doesn't mean we live according to the standards of people that don't know Christ, but we need to be around them and engage with them so that they will hear the truth that will set them free. It's a war to do that. And we can't escape it. But we also must not be lazy in it. We must not be lazy. We must wake up to it. We must prepare ourselves as the Apostle Paul would call us in Ephesians 6.10, where he says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Be strong. Be strong. Which means the battle is hard, but our strength comes from the Lord. I'd encourage you for a fun exercise to read through Ephesians 6.10-19 this week and take note of in this war, what armor has God given us? And what, how are those pieces of the armor described? It is an encouraging and helpful endeavor. But we can't be lazy. We can't be passive. We must wake up to it and prepare ourselves for it. So if we have been lazy, if we have been apathetic, what do we do? We need to repent. Repent of that. Confess to the Lord. Turn away from it. And pray, Lord, help me to be strong to trust in you and to be strong, to be alert to the attacks of the enemy, to be alert to the ideas coming my way and help me to respond rightly as you say I should. Help me. We must wake up to it. Wake up to this war. Well, this leads us maybe to wonder then, okay, we're in a war, we're in this battle, what weapons are we to use? Paul is using warlike language. Okay, so what are the weapons? What do I use? Well, thankfully, he provides some helpful insight on that. In our next point, our next verse, verse 4, 
that we are, the second tactic he gives us is that we are to employ the right weapons. Employ the right weapons. If we're going to see the battle around us and then live for Christ in the midst of it, we must use the appropriate weaponry. And as we look at verse 4, what's it say? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What do you see there at the beginning of verse 4? The word for again. For, again, what's it doing? It's providing an explanation, a description. He's explaining, okay, since he's not warring according to the flesh, let me tell you how he is warring, what the weaponry is that he uses in this fight. And so the weapons he uses for this warfare are distinct. The idea of, when he uses the term weapons here, weapons of warfare, this term refers to both offensive and defensive equipment that is, listen, purposefully designed to prepare someone for military engagement. Right, so it's offensive, defensive, special equipment designed for the purpose of engagement, and it readies the soldier to engage while also protecting from various attacks. Did you catch that? Ready to engage, equipped to engage, but also protected. And so he, he really sets up here in this verse 4 a contrast between two different kinds of weapons. We see the first, the weapons of warfare that are not of the flesh, but then we see weapons of warfare that are divinely powerful. So let's look at both of those. The first that he does not use, that we should not use, are of the flesh, or merely human, you could translate it. These are, as James 3 would kind of give us insight into this, earthly wisdom, reasoning and, and ways of operation that are marked by jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, evil practices. Really, this fleshly weaponry, this fleshly earthly wisdom is demonic. Demonic. It is originating from all that opposes God and seeks to oppose God. I like to how studying for this, coming across a portion of commentary that John MacArthur wrote concerning the weapons of the flesh, what they are. And I thought this was helpful. He says this, quote, the weapons in Paul's arsenal were not those of human ingenuity, human ideology, or human methodology. Human reason, wisdom, plans, strategies, organizations, skill, eloquence, marketing, religious showmanship, philosophical or psychological speculation, ritualism, pragmatism, or mysticism are all ineffective weapons against the forces of the kingdom of darkness that cannot rescue sinners from the domain of darkness or transform believers into Christ-likeness. Such weapons gain only superficial temporary and deceptive victories at best. Wow, that's helpful because we are in a world set up with all those things. We are coming across all those reasonings, models, methods, you name it, all the time. And so I I couldn't help but ponder, okay, so those are kind of areas, categories. What Practically, does church life look like if we're doing this according to the flesh, using weapons of the flesh? As I thought through it, I thought, wow, it will be a church that is driven by pragmatism, pragmatic, seeker-sensitive, showy services meant to meet people's wants, not needs, wants. Often we've seen in history that church gets tailored for the unbelievers and it becomes very self-focused. Go to the church with the programs that meet your interests. So it's all about me. And so as I dug a little further, I thought, huh, I wonder what some stunts pastors have done that would fall in line with this. And boy, that was frustrating. Let me give you a couple. I had to cut There were so many. I'm going to cut it down to two. 
pastors doing irreverent stunts to spice up the preaching. You could be like the pastor who cuddled in a bed on stage with a mannequin so that he could preach on relationships. Or, how about the pastor who thought it would be helpful while he preached to sit in a car that they would blow up? Yes, they did it. Yes, he lived. And no, we are not doing that at Eastridge. <laughs> we don't have the insurance for that. But these are just, these are foolish, irreverent examples of human weapons, fleshly ideas to appeal to the lost. And the church needs to stop this. They need to stop this silliness and instead spread the scripture. Why spread the scripture? Well, because the truth of God's word, as Paul would go on to say, is divinely powerful. It is, what does it say? Divinely powerful or powerful to God. That the the weapons Paul uses are powerful, this is what it means, powerful to accomplish God's purposes. And this text would tell us that the purposes here are making himself known, that God makes himself known, and he brings about obedience to Christ. So these divine weapons accomplish this purpose. So you ask, okay, what were these weapons? Come on, Paul, what were they specifically? Well, he doesn't specifically tell us, but he does say they're not of the flesh and they have divine power to destroy fortresses. Well, the only thing that has that kind of power is the truth of God's word. And think about the context here. Paul is countering lies with what? The truth. The truth. The truth is the ultimate weapon. The truth is what would deliver these Corinthians from the deception of the false teachers. The truth is the supreme weapon. And the truth is found in God's word. It is God's word. In fact, Paul would list in Ephesians 6.17 that among the armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And the Bible is God's word. It is the weapon of truth. And it bears the power of God Almighty. This was the weapon that Paul employed. And it is a wonderful weapon. As the Scottish pastor Thomas Guthrie said, the Bible is an armory of heavenly weapons. The Bible is an armory of heavenly weapons. And by the way, you can't exhaust that armory. Just thinking about the, the power of God's word, being divinely powerful. I want to I pause and let's just think about what the Bible says about itself. What it says about God's word. I mean, you, you remember last week, right? Mark Wilson preached on Isaiah 55. And, and in verse 11, we see that God tells us that his word will always accomplish what he intends. What did he say, Mark Wilson? He said, what the one thing the Bible never does is nothing. I love it. It always accomplished what God intends. Or Jeremiah 23, 29, in the midst of deceptive false teaching and shepherds leading people astray, Jeremiah writes this, the Lord says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? It's powerful. It can break any fortress, any faulty thinking, any lie, any corrupt worldview, it smashes it. Any hard heart, God can break the hard heart. But not only that, it's like a fire. It can burn through the lies and set the believer on fire with zeal for Christ. What about this? We know Romans 1.16, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is What? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It, it, he doesn't say it might be the power. It could be possibly the power. No, it is the power of God for salvation. If there's going to be salvation, it takes the gospel. Where do we find the gospel? We find it written about in the word of God, in the Bible. Or you might remember Hebrews 4.12 which compares the word of God to the sword of the spirit, which cuts through, it pierces through the most tangled thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right? We're deceived by our own heart. Doesn't Jeremiah say that? 
Heart is deceitfully wicked, but what is it that can cut through that deception? It's the word of God. Or even you get to the end of the story. In Revelation 19, when Jesus returns, you know what happens when he returns? By his word, he instantly defeats all his enemies and all the nations are subdued under him. By his word. That is the power behind what we carry with us all the time. And let's just pause for a moment and think uh, how blessed we are that we have copies of this in our language we can't carry around all the time or on our devices. We can constantly go back and see what God's word said. We can test what is said by the scriptures. So this, this powerful word, the ultimate weapon of the truth, this was the power of Paul's ministry. It wasn't Paul himself. It was the truth. As God's servant, he, Paul ministered under God's authority with a weapon that carries the force of the omnipotent God. Do you realize that? Do you realize that when we carry this around and we read this daily, we are reading the words of the one who is so powerful, he spoke everything into existence? God's word is powerful, it's authoritative, it's sufficient, and it's effective in accomplishing God's purposes. Why do we think we need more? We don't. What we, what we need is to know what we have. We need to know the Bible, obey the Bible, and engage others with the Bible, whether they believe it or not. The Bible is the power. Not my eloquence of speech. Not my crafty ways to turn a phrase. It's the Scripture. So it is divinely powerful. This weapon is divinely powerful. What's he say? For, there's that little word again, for the destruction of fortresses. For the, this is the purpose. The use of the word, of the truth, is to destroy fortresses. So I want you to imagine, imagine an ancient city that has this structure with reinforced walls that people could flee into and be safe when an army would invade. And these formidable structures were meant to withstand the most aggressive attack. So it would take a powerful weapon to destroy the fortress. And here Paul uses the idea of fortresses to represent ways of thinking against God. As we consider what he says next concerning thoughts, speculations, The fortresses represent ideologies, systems of thinking, ways of thinking, concepts, worldviews, anti-God arguments, anti-God beliefs. And so these false arguments that Paul is dealing with were like fortresses set around the minds of the people to keep them from what? To keep them from understanding the truth. And it is these ways of thinking that we need to engage with the truth to tear down those barriers. And the good news is is that no human opinion can stand before the truth of God's word. No human opinion can prevail over God's word. Isn't that encouraging? Because you know what that means? That means we don't need to fear psychological or theoretically scientific arguments that just seem so complex they must be right. We don't, it means we don't have to shy away from those who have complex speculations against the truth. We don't, we don't even need actually to be experts on those things. What we need is to be competent with God's word, competent with the sword that can tear down those complex arguments. And so let's ask ourselves, Are we competent with God's word? Are we employing this weapon in the fight? We need to grasp firmly this ultimate weapon of the truth to have God's word rightly understood and God's word rightly applied. To know it, to submit to it, to share it, to trust God when we share it that he does what he intends. And if we feel like we aren't competent, don't know it, what do we do? 
We get in it. We read it. We study it. We help each other understand it. God will do what he intends with his word. So knowing that Paul, he's waging war by this divinely powerful weapon, you might wonder like I did, okay, Paul, how do you actually, though, engage in the fight? Like, like what do you actually do? What's the next step? What are the steps? And so he, thankfully, helps us here with that. And our last point that we are to engage strategically. That's the, the third tactic, is we need to engage strategically. This is verses, some of you, your Bibles might have the end of verse 4 through 6, some might be 5 through 6. All right, in this section, there's, there's some difference in translations. Uh, the Greek text behind it actually begins at the end of verse 4. But if you're using an ESV or an ASB, they did a good job of picking up this new train of thought in verse 5. But if you're using a Greek text, I love you, and you're wonderful. In this section, though, Paul is, is describing here, what's he say? He says, we are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. So Paul is describing, how, how does he actually engage in the fight? How does he actually do this warfare ministry? Well, he gives us really three participles. Okay, for my, my grammar nerds out there, three participles, they support the main verb, to provide the steps, the process by which, the means by which he engages this war. The first step, this is the beginning of, you see in verse 5, he, it's destroying arguments opposed to God. Destroying arguments opposed to God. This is where he says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're destroying it. We're tearing it down. And it's in, all three of these participles are what we call present tense, so they're ongoing. He is continually engaging and tearing down speculations. Lofty things raised against the knowledge of God. He's not leaving anything standing. He's not settling for any, well, we agree here. Yeah, we disagree over here. It's not a big deal. At least we got this over here. He's not settling for that. You know, wow, do, do you really need to say Jesus is the only way? That seems so harsh. But, you know, they have good intentions. No, we don't settle for that. This is a major issue. Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God. And so we are tearing down Arguments raised against God, speculations, which are, are, are thoughts, reasonings, patterns of thinking, no matter how fancy they might sound or from whatever academically astute person they come from. We also tear down every lofty thing, or if you have the ESV, it says lofty opinion. The point here in this idea is something lifted up. So we tear down all arrogance, Things that are arrogantly put forward that actually oppose God. Pridefulness here. This is the, the mindset, the, the reasoning of, well, we actually know better, right? Those Christians, they just, they were, they're historically dumb. They don't know. This is, this is where our culture is now. This is what we need to believe. This is what's right. That was arrogant. And we don't settle for that. There is an absolute standard of truth whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not. And we hold fast to that absolute standard of God's word. So we, we go after, we rebuttal these arguments that are, what? Raised or opposed against God, against the knowledge of God. This idea of being raised, this word has the idea of something being purposefully resisting. These arguments purposely are brought forward to resist people knowing God. They're barriers, walls, defenses raised to keep people from knowing the one true God. And you might ask, okay, well, why is it so important we deal with these arguments? Well, it's so important because people's eternity is at stake. Salvation depends upon knowing the Lord. Right? Remember John seventeen three. 
This is eternal life, Jesus says. This is eternal life. That they may know you. Talking about the Father. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We must know the truth about God. Christianity is not a feelings-based religion. It is content-driven. There are things we must know if we are to be reconciled to God. We must know who God is. We must know our sinfulness and the wrath we deserve. We must know the perfection of Christ. We must know the sacrifice of Christ. We must know who Christ is. We must know what it takes to respond rightly. It's repentance and faith. We must know that. If we are to be saved, do you know that? Do you know the gospel? Do you know Christ? Though God is high and holy and righteous and perfect, we are naturally sinners who shake our fist at Him. The Bible calls us enemies of God, hostile to God, deserving His wrath because we have spit in the face of the eternal King. And yet, though deserving wrath, he in love sent his son to live the perfect life we never could, yet the son died then purposefully to pay for our sins and to pay for them in full on the cross. And though he died, he didn't say that he rose again from the grave and is alive and calls every one of us to repent and trust in him. Have you done that? If you have, the Bible says you know him. You know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. If not, you must do that today. Please, I plead with you, stop gambling with your life. Your location in eternity will be based on what you did with the gospel. Did you repent and trust in Jesus? Or did you reject him? Please trust in him, know him. And as we think about this war, we must be willing to articulate the truth so that the barriers that others have created can be torn down and the light of the gospel can shine in. Ultimately, so that people would know Jesus and be saved. As we think about these arguments, these speculations that are raised, these ideologies, I want to take a few moments and I actually want to go through a few of them that we run into. Not only do we run into but we ourselves might find temptation towards. So let's walk through a few of these ideologies. You could call them the isms, I-S-M-S, isms, because they end with isms, right? And to give credit where credit is due, I was helped by uh, some work by Paul Tripp and John MacArthur in thinking through what these things are. The first one is relativism. Okay, so what's an ideology that we do face? One is relativism. Relativism. This says, hey, there's no objective truth. There's no objective standard, absolute standard for life. Everyone gets to determine what's right in their own eyes. In fact, they can just change what they think is right depending on their circumstances. What's an example of that in our culture? Well, it would be postmodern, postmodernism, postmodern thinking, the whole battle for what is truth. That wages everywhere. And so the world says with relativism, do what you want. But God says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, is Jesus speaking. Another ism, another ideology would be individualism. Individualism. This is where it's, hey, it's all about me. My happiness, my needs, my wants, my rights. I'm going to live in a way that denies or ignores any personal responsibility towards God and others. What are some examples of ways we might see this? Well, you might see it with a poor work ethic. You might see it in complaining. Or the taglines of our, our culture in major media and entertainment. Just follow your heart. Believe in yourself. Self-esteem movement is an example of this. A lack of prayer is an example of this. Not asking others for help when you really truly need help can be an example of this. 
And so in an individualism, the world says, it's all about you. But God says, worship and follow me. How about materialism? Another ideology, materialism. This is seeking after the treasures of this life with no focus or priority on spiritual realities. Right? We just turn on the TV or YouTube and the commercials you see there are meant to feed that. Entertainment feeds that. Christmas could even feed that. You're like thinking, oh, what do I want for Christmas? I want this and this and this and this and this. And then when your kids don't get what they wanted, what is it? Can we go to the store and buy more toys? I need more toys. I didn't get the toys I wanted. With materialism, the world says, you need more and you deserve more. God says, be content with what you have for I am enough. Or another ideology would be victimism. Victimism. This is not taking responsibilities for actions or sins. In fact, excusing them, blame shifting. Don't, you don't see the need to change or confess your sin. It's everyone else's fault. Where do we see that in our culture? Well, this is the current social justice and woke movement. The world says with this, it's everyone else's fault, so make them pay. God says, humble yourselves and repent. Or lastly, we face naturalism. Naturalism. This is the denial of anything spiritual, denial of God as the creator or his existence. This says, this life is all there is, live it up. But it's also the devaluing of human life. We see this, we're familiar with this one. We see this with the concepts of evolution, euthanasia, abortion. The world says, God doesn't exist and you're just a complex goo. God says that in the beginning he created the universe and by the way, you are fearfully and wonderfully made in his image. We face these and there is more. There is more ideologies than just this. But these are so woven into our culture, even into the way we might find ourselves drifting in our thoughts. We will face these. So what do we do with them? Well, we need to repent of them if we're living this way. Make sure that we aren't thinking this way. But then we think about the world, even just one of the songs we sing, right? Love towards the captor. We need to have compassion on those who are in bondage to these wicked speculations. And how do we have compassion? We tell them the truth about Jesus who sets them free. Tell them the truth. So we destroy arguments opposed to God. The second step is we take thoughts captive to Christ. Take thoughts captive to Christ. He goes on to say, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So back to our war picture. Imagine you have a fortress, big mighty fortress. It's being torn down by the truth and its inhabitants that had dwelled within who resisted the king now are taken captive to him. This idea of taking captive is this ongoing grabbing and bringing under control something. Grabbing hold of our thoughts, right? Because we're taking captive every thought. Every thought. The mind and the heart are the spiritual battleground. That's where the battleground is at. That's where the battle is fought. And so every thought, every thought we have is to be placed under the Lord's authority. Every thought. And thoughts are significant. Thoughts and ideas have earthly and eternal consequences. And so wrong thinking, wrong ideas need to be seized and confronted with God's truth. And remember, that's what Paul's doing here with the Corinthians. Wrong thinking, false accusations, seize, confront with the truth. And what's the objective in all this? What's, what's Paul's objective in warfare? What's, what should be our objective in the warfare? Well, it's, a, what's he, it's what he says at the end of verse 5. Obedience to Christ. Obedience to Christ is our objective. Why? Because obedience to Christ shows you truly know God, that he is the Lord of the universe, that he rightfully deserves our submission, our worship. 
And so everyone needs their thoughts to come under the authority, the direction of the Lord, so that there would be no barrier, no barrier from people knowing God. So let's think. What does it actually look like to take thoughts captive to Christ? What's it, what does it look like? How do we do that? Well, first, we take whatever we hear, whatever we see, or maybe whatever we personally think, and we ask the question, is it true? Is it true? You can run it through the Philippians 4.8 test. Okay, what I'm hearing, what I'm thinking, is it true? Honorable, just, lovely, pure, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. If it is, praise the Lord. If not, when, the, when there is a thought that is untrue, uh, that is hurtful, that is ungodly, then we must stop that thought and say, no, that does not honor Christ. And then we replace it with the truth of the Scriptures. I get rid of the ungodly thought and I place my thinking on the truth and while at the same time I pray, Lord, please help me to dwell on this truth. Help me to dwell on what's right. Or when we think about taking thoughts captive in a discipleship culture with other believers, we should help each other learn how to submit our thoughts to the Lord, how to live according to his word. That helping, that's discipleship. But if we're engaging an unbeliever, that's not discipleship. That's evangelism. That we present them with the truth so that, Lord willing, they would be taken captive to Christ and trust him. And all this, we can't be passive. People's eternity is at stake. In fact, our walks with Christ are even impacted by it, what we do with our thoughts. So we, first step, we destroy arguments opposed to God. Second step, we take our thoughts captive to Christ. And the third step is what we find in verse 6. We be ready to discipline if necessary. Be ready to discipline if necessary. So after intentionally tearing down false worldviews and putting our thoughts under the reign of Jesus, the apostle ends this with giving a warning against continual rebellion in the church. It is interesting, he, if you look at verses 5 and 6, there is a repetition of the word every or all. It's the same word in the Greek text. He says in verse 5, every lofty thing. So every lofty thing. Then he says every thought. And then here he says all or every disobedience. That threefold repetition giving the idea here, he's emphasizing, emphasizing the total victory and rule that Christ has. That, that there's nothing, nothing that escapes the necessity of being submissive to Jesus. Every thought, every belief, every argument, every action must come under the rule of Christ. And so he says, the idea here, we're ready, we're willing to confront when sin is not repented of, we're ready and willing for the sake of the purity and the unity of the church. So he's, address, he's talking about church discipline here. It's church discipline, though, against those who are persistently disobedient. Now, the word disobedience here, it, it carries the meaning of a refusal to listen. I refuse to listen, and so I'm going to act in this rebellious way. There's a Paul is talking about those who are intentionally rebelling against God's word and the leadership that God has put in place, right? Because that's what Paul is dealing with, accusations against his leadership, which the Lord put him in place. But that intentional rebellion must be dealt with. Now, this is not a battle over preferences. What I like, my opinion. No, this is a, a battle a war to fight against unbiblical arguments that keep people from knowing God and submitting to God. Those are what we address. And notice, he ends by saying, whenever your obedience is complete, I'm ready, we're ready to punish. The idea, we're ready to practice church discipline. And then he adds at the end there, whenever your obedience is complete. Paul was patient. He's a patient man. 
He, he gave the Corinthians time to correct their course and then let the lines be drawn of who stands where. Stands with Christ or against Christ. The desire here is not for Paul to just come in and just hammer everybody with the, with the truth, you're all wrong. No, he wanted to give them the opportunity to correct their course. His desire was for the church to dwell in unity. But just because he was a patient man doesn't mean that he didn't take it seriously or that he wouldn't confront when it was necessary, when it was the right thing to do. And really, that's, that's church discipline, as Jesus reminds us and calls us to in Matthew 18. Right? We, need, we must confront when someone will not repent after multiple appeals to God's word. So, like Paul would do, we too should be faithful to confront if necessary. And as we do it, because it's the right thing, we need to trust God in the process. Because the goal here is obedience to Christ. The goal is full obedience. When your obedience is complete, full, complete, mature, the Lord desires maturity in His church. He desires there to be unity seen, a full-hearted submission to Him, a full-hearted submission to His Word, a full-hearted submission to His leaders, the ones He puts in place, right? Remember, He's the supreme shepherd. And so Paul calls them to correct their course so that their maturity would be full and complete. And ultimately, He calls for this. Why? So that Jesus would be glorified. So we're ready to discipline when necessary. But in the process, we've taken thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ and we've destroyed the arguments that oppose God. We're ready to engage by that strategy. So I want to, as we close, I want to give you four takeaways. Four takeaways from this text that help us really navigate through this spiritual warfare. And some of them will sound familiar with just our main points. But the first is to be alert to the war. Be alert to the war. Be alert to the war, remembering that, as we talked about at the beginning, there's more going on than meets the eye. There's more than what we see, what we hear, that is an answer for why the world is the way it is. We must, as we're alert, we're discerning and aware of the influences that come our way. And if I could make one special plea, that's to the fathers. Fathers, you are to stand at the gate of your home and protect your family from the lies of this world, from the ungodly influences. So we must be alert to the war. Second, we must engage the world and each other with the word of God. Engage the world and each other with the word of God. Well, to do that, that means we must evangelize. We must tell the lost the good news about Jesus. And that means we must be discipling. We must be discipled. There needs to be that ongoing of learning the word, applying the word, sharing the word. Third, we must be captivated by Christ in our thought life. Be captivated by Christ in your thought life. Right, that Jesus would be just wonderful to us. A wonderful Savior. He's been so kind and gracious. So my obedience to Him, I want to obey Him. Look how loving and gracious He's been towards me. Fourth, lastly, think about the context. Paul is calling for the whole church to walk together. So the fourth one is to walk with Christ together. Walk with Christ together. Help each other in obedience to Christ. Help each other to walk in unity as God intended. So be alert to the war. Engage the world and each other with the word of God. Be captivated by Christ in your thought life and walk with Christ together. So what's going on in the world? Well, there's a war. A war being fought, right? A war being fought. And we're in it. And if we're... We're going to face the opposition of the enemy if we're walking with Christ. But, as the reformer John Knox said, a man with God is always in the majority. A man with God is always in the majority. We don't need to fear or fret when we face opposition because we know God. 
the all-powerful, almighty one who is with us and has given us his word. As servants of Christ, we must combat that ungodly thinking with the truth. With the truth. Let's live for Christ by following Paul's three tactics, right? Wake up to the war, employ the right weapons, and engage strategically, ultimately for the glory of Christ, the good of his people, and the salvation of the lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that we have it, that we can understand it. We can read it wherever we are. And we thank you that it brings clarity to understand why we see what we see in this fallen world, why we face the hardships we face, and also how we are to respond to it. Father, I pray that we would be people of the book, people of the Bible who know it well, who walk obediently towards it, and are competent to engage each other and the world with it so that we would see people saved. Lord, we, we pray that this year, this coming year, we would see many people coming to Christ in this area, that we would see a growth in the church, both spiritually in our own walks, but also growth numerically because more people are trusting in Jesus. Father, please do that work, and we trust that you will because the weapons you use are divinely powerful. Father, may our worship now be from an overflow of a heart that is continually captivated to Christ because he is lovely. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.